0: Peace be upon you. So in the year 216 BCE, we have the famous Battle of Cannae during the Second Punic War. And this was a battle between the Carthaginian general Hannibal, and he faced off against the Roman Republic. And this was their third battle. and the first two battles, Hannibal was able to outmaneuver them despite being the smaller force. And this was not any different. In this case, in this specific battle, he was nearly outnumbered two to one but he devised a brilliant strategy based on his deep understanding of Roman military tactics and psychology. Hannibal knew that the Romans heavily relied on their traditional tactics, which focused on a solid and deep central formation with flanking maneuverability. He cleverly used this knowledge against them. Hannibal positioned his infantry in a convex formation, allowing for a very thin line down the center positioning himself directly behind this thin line. He knew full well that the Romans are going to try to attack that center and not only try to break his army into two, but try to kill him in the process. And this is exactly what happened. The Romans saw Hannibal's forces. They saw that they were spread very wide with a very thin layer of men down the middle. So with as much force as they could, they tried to attack down that middle. And Hannibal was allowing them to make ground. And the Romans thought they're making progress. But what they didn't realize was these flanks on the side eventually enveloped the entire Roman army. So the Romans thought that they had the upper hand, but they completely miscalculated the entire battle. They failed to grasp Hannibal's innovative strategy and underestimated his military prowess. Instead of adapting their tactics to counter Hannibal's maneuvers, they stubbornly stuck to their traditional methods. This led to a devastating defeat for the Romans, where an estimated 70,000 Roman soldiers were killed and another 10,000 or so were captured. Hannibal, on the other hand, only lost 8,000 men. That's a ratio of 10 to 1. And some say that this devastating defeat against the Romans of so many casualties cause a 20% decline of the adult male population of Rome from this one battle alone. The Battle of Cannae is a classic example of how failing to properly understand one's enemy and relying on tradition can lead to utter defeat. While Hannibal's deep knowledge of Roman military practices and psychology allowed him to exploit their weakness and secure a decisive win. The Romans' lack of understanding and failure to see their shortcomings ultimately resulted in their utter loss. This is why it's so critical to know our enemy, to know who we are battling against, because only when we adequately know their tactics, what they're capable of, what they have up their sleeves, can we properly prepare ourselves so that we do not get annihilated in the process. The Quran informs us in this world, our most ardent enemy is Satan. In Surah 17, verse 53, it reads, tell my servants to treat each other in the best possible manner for the devil will always try to drive a wedge among them. Surely the devil is man's most ardent enemy. We see this expression used again in Surah 36, verse 60. It reads, Did I not covenant with you, O children of Adam, that you shall not worship the devil, that he is your most ardent enemy? Satan's sole mission in this world is to attempt to lead as many human beings astray as he possibly can. And he's not settled with just leading them astray, he wants to lead them as astray as possible to their full potential. He has many generations of practice, and has been studying us since our creation. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our vulnerabilities. Therefore, it's absolutely critical that we are aware of his tactics and how he goes about trying to deceive us. Now, the Quran has plenty of examples of how the devil utilizes his tactics, how he's able to do to do human beings. And I just want to focus on one passage in Surah 7. And this is starting from verse 12 we see that the first aspect of understanding the devil, understanding our opponent, this ardent enemy, is that he has nothing to lose. He's already condemned to hell. He, The only thing he has left is the ability of sending as many human beings along with him as he can. And it reads in Surah 7 verse 12, it says, he said, what prevented you from prostrating when I ordered you? And for backstory, God created Adam and asked the angels to fall prostrate. They all fell prostrate except for Satan. He refused. And Satan's response, when questioned about this. It says, he said, I am better than he. You created me from fire and created him from mud. He, God said, therefore you must go down for you're not to be arrogant here. Get out, you're debased. He said, grant me a respite until the day of resurrection. He said, you are granted a respite. This indicates to us that, again, Satan has nothing to lose. He's already condemned to hell. He's already decided he's not going to repent. He's not going to reform. He's going to take this last opportunity he has to try to send as many individuals as he can to hell. In the next set of verses, we read how he goes about doing this, that he's going to come from all possible sides. It reads in verse 7, verse 16 and 17. It says, he said, since you have willed that I go astray, I will skulk for them on your straight path. I will come to them from before them and from behind them and from their right and from their left. And you will find that most of them are unappreciative. So Satan is being upfront with his strategy, his tactic. He's going to come from your right. He's going to come from the side of righteousness. He's going to come from the left. He's going to come from the side of evil. He's going to come from your back where you don't see him. He's going to come right in front of you to your face. And these are the approaches that the devil's going to utilize. And it continues. In verse 18, we see that he knows our vulnerabilities. He knows how to make us tick. It reads, he said, Get out therefrom, despise and defeat it. Those among them who follow you, I will fill hell with you all. As for you, Adam, dwell with your wife in paradise and eat therefrom as you please. But do not approach this one tree lest you fall in sin. This example here is showing That our weakness, this tree, this metaphorical tree, this is all the devil needs to do to cause us to fall, to cause us to sin. This one thing that God said don't do, if the devil can get you to do that, then he's won. He's proven his point. So he knows our weaknesses. He knows what his end objective is. It's to make us to fall into sin. And we continue reading, starting from verse 20 to 22, and we see that Satan tempts. He deceives and he has absolutely no shame in trying to achieve his outcome. Because again, he has nothing to lose. It reads, The devil whispered to them in order to reveal their bodies, which were invisible to them. He said, Your Lord did not forbid you from this tree except to prevent you from becoming angels and from attaining eternal existence. Think of this example. The devil wants to embarrass us. He wants us to be naked metaphorically. He wants us to give up our garment and to be able to fall into sin. Again, to prove his point. And all he has to do is convince us to approach this tree to fall into sin. And he's going to conjure up all kinds of lies and persuasive arguments to get us to approach that tree. It continues, it says, He swore to them, I am giving you good advice. He thus duped them with lies. As soon as they tasted the tree, their bodies became visible to them. And they try to cover themselves with the leaves of paradise. Their Lord called upon them, then I not enjoin you from that tree and warn you that the devil is your most ardent enemy. Consider this. Adam and Eve, when they fell in sin, they felt shame. They saw their naked bodies. They tried to cover themselves. What did the devil do when he fell in sin? No, he became more arrogant. He had no shame. And it goes to show that the devil will pull any stop will do anything. will convince whatever argument he can come up with to try to convince people to defy God's direct commandments. What a simple rule. Don't approach this one tree. You have all of paradise. But yet, despite that, the devil found a way to get to Adam. He convinced them. He says, look, the reason you're not allowed to eat from this tree is because if you do, you'll become eternal. You'll become an angel. You'll be able to get a shortcut to this higher status. And that was enough for him to buy into the lies. And the second they tasted from the tree, they realized that they've been duped. Now, these lessons aren't there for us just to learn history. They're there to teach us a lesson. And it tells us in the following verses that if we want to be protected from Satan, that there's one garment we need to be wearing at all times. And that is the garment of righteousness. It reads, O children of Adam, we have provided you with garments to cover your bodies as well as for luxury, but the best garment is the garment of righteousness. These are some of God's signs that they may take heed. O children of Adam, do not let the devil dupe you as he did when he caused the eviction of your parents from paradise and the removal of their garments to expose their bodies. He and his tribe see you while you do not see them. We appoint the devils as companions of those who do not believe. God is telling us that if we want to be protected from Satan in this battle, the one garment we need that's going to give us this protection is the garment of righteousness. The second we commit sin, we lose that garment and we become vulnerable. And when we become vulnerable, then Satan is going to do his bidding. The Quran continues on this narrative, but it takes an interesting turn. It goes from talking about Satan, how to being protected from Satan, Satan's schemes, to warning the human being about inherited information, specifically that of tradition. It reads in Surah 7, 28 through 29, says they commit a gross sin. Then say, we found our parents doing this and God has commanded us to do it. Say, God never advocates sin. Are you saying about God what you do not know? Say, my Lord advocates justice and to stand devoted to him alone at every place of worship. You shall devote your worship absolutely to him alone, just as he initiated you, you will ultimately go back to him. This is really fascinating. We went from this history of Satan, his tactics, how he duped our father, Adam, our mom, Eve. And it's saying that the next thing that God warns us about is examining inherited information. When it states that they're told, do not commit sin. They say, we found our parents doing this and we are commanded to do it. These are people blindly following tradition. God confirms that he never advocates sin. Then it continues and it tells us that we must be devoted to God alone at every place of worship. Consider that the only unforgivable sin if maintained until death is shirk, is idol worship, is associating partners with God. And that is all Satan needs to do in order to guarantee a person's spot in hell is to have them fall into idol worship, yet think that they are righteous. Have them start associating partners next to God. Have them start associating the servant of God next to God or associating anything next to God. Consider like there's idol worship, which is the active, active worshiping of uh, other than God. But shirk is more subtle than that. Shirk is simply associating anything with God. If we are not content with the worship of God alone, the mention of God alone, being devoted absolutely to God alone at every place of worship in our life, in our contact prayer, then we're associating a partner next to God. And the Quran continues. It tells us and it warns us that these people who are upholding tradition, they think that they are guided. And that is the most dangerous thing because they don't even realize Just how blasphemous, how gross of a sin it is when they start committing this gross act of idol worship. It says, some he guided while others are committed to strength. They have taken the devils as their masters instead of God. Yet they believe that they are guided. Can you imagine someone, they spend their whole life, they give to charity, they do righteous works, they do all these stuff. But they never fixed their idol worship that all their good deeds are going to be nullified, that they will have nothing to show for on the day of judgment. Because again, this is the one unforgivable sin, if maintained until death, is to be an idol worshiper, to associate partners with God. The Quran's depiction of Satan is an entity we must constantly be on guard against. One that is conniving, persuasive, and not to be taken lightly. He duped countless individuals with his tactics. We're talking about millions upon millions from generation to generation. He's duped them. He's even duped the prophets and messengers. Praise God. They repented. They reformed. But it goes to show that even among the most righteous, Satan is still able to dupe them at times. So this is an entity we should be severely cautious of if we want to be successful in our battle against him. And we can guarantee That he's coming for each of us. Because that is his sole function in this world. He's going to come for us from the front, the back, the right, the left. And he's going to do everything he can to have us fall into idol worship. To have us turn unappreciative of our Lord. Now, the Quran takes this very seriously. It depicts Satan as a very ardent opponent. Not someone to be taken lightly. But contrast this to how the hadith and the tradition depict Satan. In short, the hadith corpus does not make Satan seem like an intimidating opponent. Instead, they portray Satan as this bumbling buffoon who can't tell the difference between his elbow from his ear. And this is severely destructive on so many levels because people are not aware of who they're fighting against. They have this cartoonish depiction of the devil from the tradition. So for instance, if you read Sahih Muslim or Bukhari, you hear that when the Adan is called, the call to prayer is made, that Satan takes on his heels and he starts farting as loud as he can to block the noise of the Adhan. And then when the Adhan is stopped, he goes and he starts whispering to people to get them not to think about their contact prayer. I mean, this is nonsense. They make him into this goonish, cartoonish character. This is not someone who you should be taking seriously if this is the narration you read of. In another narration that we read in previous episodes, this is Sahih Bukhari, 1210. We see that when the prophet was praying in the masjid, that Satan came and tried to distract him. And the prophet got him in a chokehold and tied him to a pillar. And he was going to leave him there, but then he felt bad, so he let him go. And you realize, like, when they portray Satan this way, it's not a serious opponent. It's not someone that you should be fearing. It's not someone that you should be on guard for. Again, they make this, like, kind of cartoonish, weird Uh, quirky character out of Satan in the Hadith. Another one. (laughs) This is beyond ridiculous. So this is narrated. Ibn Abbas, uh, Allah's messenger said, Satan comes to one of you in the Salat and blows air on his bottom. So he imagines that he has released air, yet he did not. So if he gets that feeling, he should not leave his prayer unless he hears the sound or he smells its odor. So Satan's going around blowing on people's butt cheeks trying to fool them into thinking that they passed gas when they didn't. This is the depiction of Satan they have in the Hadith. In another one, this is Sahih Bukhari 3270. It says, it was mentioned before the prophet that there was a man who slept at night till morning. The prophet said, he is a man in whose ear Satan had urinated. That if you didn't get up for the Salat, the reason is, is because Satan was urinating in your ear. Now, this is ridiculous. This is nonsense. You don't see any of this in the Quran. They create this cartoonish, you know, practical jokester in the Hadith. And it's someone that, you know, people will not take seriously. If I tell you, hey, you're going to be fighting you know, someone and say, "Hey, who am I fighting? And I, I give you this this depiction. Oh, this guy's a silly individual. You, you know, he goes around, you can choke him out and tie him to a pillar and he's going to blow on your butt and make you think you fart. You're not going to take this person seriously. You're going to go sit on the couch. But if I tell you, I say, look, you're going against the top MMA fighter, right? This guy's knocked out more people than you can count. Then you're going to take it seriously. You're going to train. So when they make Satan appear this way, all he's doing is he is allowing people to drop their guard. In another narration, this is Sahih Bukhari 3295, again narrated by our beloved Abu Huraira. it reads The Prophet said, If any of you rouses from sleep and performs the ablution, he should wash his nose by putting water in it and then blowing it out thrice because Satan has stayed in the upper part of his nose all night. What nonsense! This is the reason that people have added this step to their ablution. They think that when they're sleeping, Satan is in the upper part of their nose. And you ask like the scholars, what does this even possibly mean? They don't know. And why the upper part? Why not the lower part? It's like it's such nonsense, such utter uh, despicable content. And it just makes a mockery of God's religion. It makes a mockery of the prophet. And again, it makes our most ardent enemy seem like someone we shouldn't be taking seriously. Another one, Sahih Bukhari 6223. Again, by Abu Huraira. It says, Allah likes sneezing and dislikes yawning. So if someone sneezes and then praises Allah, then it's obligatory on every Muslim who heard him to say, may Allah be merciful on you. But as regards to yawning, it is from Satan. So one must try one's best to stop it. If one says, ha, when yawning, Satan will laugh at him. So Satan doesn't want you to yawn. It's not that Satan wants you to commit idol worship. He wants you to be unappreciative. No, no, no. What Satan's actually after, he's trying to get people to yawn. This is so absurd on so many levels. Uh, Sahih Bukhari 5,623, it reads, uh, Allah's messenger said, When night falls or when it's evening, stop your children from going out. For the devils spread out at that time. But when the hour at night has passed, release them and close the doors and mention Allah's name for Satan does not know how to open closed doors. Really? Like that, that's your barrier. That's how you protect from Satan. You close a door, not that you devote yourself to God alone, not that you build a garment of righteousness. You do good deeds. You avoid idol worship. No, no, no. You close doors. That's how you get protected from Satan. Here's another one, Sahih Muslim 2013a it says, Allah's messenger is saying, do not let your animals and children go out when the sun sets until the first and the darkest part of the night is over. For the Satan is let loose with a sinking of the sun until the darkest part of the night is over. You know, they make Satan as if it's like it's some rabid dog. And that's actually not that far because in the next Hadith, this is Sahih Muslim 1572 it says that Satan is a jet black dog. And that's one of the commandments in the Hadith is that they were supposed to kill all the dogs. That if a dog walks in front of you, uh, that it nullifies your salat, but only the black dog because that's Satan. This is genuinely baffling. Imagine you're at war, okay? And you're highly dependent on the intelligence you have of your opposition. Now, if someone comes and they start giving you total Just absurd uh, narratives and stories about your opposition. How effective are you going to be in that battle? You're not, right? You're going to basically fall into the same trap that the Romans did to Hannibal because they didn't understand the battle. They didn't understand landscape. They were operating off tradition. Tradition. Rather than looking at the the prior examples that they saw themselves of how Hannibal was constantly outmaneuvering them despite being the smaller army. Or here's another analogy. You know, you see these videos and uh, there's someone and they come in contact with a wild animal. Let's say like a moose or a bear or even a lion. And for whatever reason, they think that, oh, this is cute and cuddly. And then they get mauled severely by that animal. It's the same thing. Exponentially worse. They treat this Satan character, as one individual on Twitter put it, as a Mr. Bean-like practical joker. But you have to ask, why? Why would this be depicted in the Hadith this way? Well, we know that the Hadith are inspired by Satan. It reads in Surah 6, verse 112 through 113, it says, We have permitted the enemies of every prophet, human, and jinn devils to inspire in each other fancy words in order to deceive. Had your Lord willed, they would not have done it. You shall disregard them and their fabrications. This is to let the minds of those who do not believe in the hereafter listen to such fabrications and accept them and thus expose their real convictions. So this is Satan's scheme to inspire in each other fancy words in order to deceive. Now, we mentioned before, Satan has no shame, right? You would think that, oh, why doesn't Satan, you know, if he's going to inspire fancy words, he should elevate his status. If his objective is to send people to hell, What's a more effective strategy? To let your opponent know that you're seriously coming out for him? Or to make them think that you're an idiot, that you're incompetent, you're incapable? In Sun Tzu's Art of War, it discusses military and psychological strategies that people utilize against opponents. One quote that comes from this book is, Appear weak when you are strong, and strong when you are weak. This is the strategy that Hannibal utilized against the Romans at the Battle of Cannae. He made the Romans think that they could easily overcome him, that because they outnumbered him and they saw the supposed perceived weakness in the center of their formation, that this was going to be a decisive victory for them. But their folly was won because they underestimated Hannibal. They saw him, they thought they could take advantage of the situation, but despite the fact that they saw that the last two battles he was able to outmaneuver them, They still stuck with their tradition. They thought that, yes, we're going to just go at them head to head. We're going to go down the center and we're going to be victorious. And they got utterly annihilated. Satan has done the same thing by spreading his narrations in the tradition of Hadith. He makes the masses think that his most effective strategy is to blow on their buttocks and make them think that they broke their abolition. Again, imagine being a general and saying, hey, you know, tell me about the opposition. Uh, you know, imagine being a general during World War II, and they tell you about the Nazis and they say, oh, yeah, yeah. What happens when you go to battle with them? They tickle you. Right. If the general thought that that was legit intelligence, they would have went to battle thinking that they're going to just defeat. They're going to just completely demolish these people. And they would be severely surprised when they realize like, oh, no, they actually have guns that they're they looking for blood. And let's not be naive. These hadith, these narrations about Satan are meant to make him look silly so people don't take him seriously. As if all you need to do to avoid Satan is close the door because Satan can't open doors. What nonsense. And now again, let's circle it back to the Quran. We see God gives us very clear guidelines that this is not someone that we take lightly, that this is a serious foe, that his entire purpose in life is to try to deceive. That he has generations of millions of people that he was able to take down. That he was able to to send to hell. And he thinks for us that we're going to be easy picking. And as long as people don't realize what they're up against, they are. In the Quran, in Surah 2, verse 170, it reads, When they're told, follow what God has revealed herein. In reference to the Quran, they say, we follow only what we found our parents doing. What if their parents did not understand and were not guided? God willing, let's not make the same mistakes of the people in the past, following blindly tradition. Let's look and examine the advice and the warnings God is giving us in the Quran so that we understand our opponent, that we understand their tactics, that we understand how he dupes people to fall into idol worship, yet think that they are righteous. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments, you got questions, you want to find like-minded individuals, please join us on our Discord server. I think we're close to 3,000 people now. Praise God. We have daily conversations. And if you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, please download the Quran City app on the iOS app store. Uh, if you don't have an iOS device, you can go to QuranCityApp.com. and all the notes can be found on QuranTalk blog. And in addition, I just want to say a God bless to yet another student on Twitter who had this thread in this comparison of Satan in the Hadith compared to Satan in the Quran, which was the inspiration for today's episode? So until next time, peace and God bless.